The first day I came to Nashville Greenlands, I arrived right in time for a potluck lunch. The big kitchen doubled as a dining room, and the table in the middle of the room was covered with salads, casseroles, and homegrown vegetables. A banjo hung on the wall, and I could hear that several conversations had a distinct drawl. About a dozen people sat on couches in the adjacent room. It seemed like the usual southern-style potluck. But this gathering wasn't just a potluck. It was also an information session about an upcoming protest at the nuclear facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I sat on a couch with an anthropology doctoral student, a few AmeriCorps volunteers, and a 75-year-old peace activist. As people discussed carpools to Oak Ridge and protest publicity, I realized that I would have to reevaluate my impression of Nashville. This was a side of the South that I hadn't imagined. Nashville Greenlands is an intentional community. Maybe you've heard of intentional communities before. Some people call them co-ops. Basically, the idea is that a bunch of people who probably aren't related decide to live together and share resources. Greenlands doesn't have too many strict community rules, but it does operate by certain principles. Nonviolence, simplicity, sharing, service to others, and reverence for the earth. As I found out at the potluck, Greenland's community members don't just talk about those principles. They strive to practice what they preach, even though they don't always agree about exactly how to put their principles into practice. I wondered what it would be like to live in a community of social justice activists. Do Greenland's community members consider their day-to-day -day routines to be part of their activism? While living at Nashville Greenlands, I saw how much work goes into sustaining a community and how much a community can sustain us in return. I was in Nashville during the spring of 2011 for an internship with an advocacy organization called the Tennessee Healthcare Campaign. So I needed to find a very affordable place to stay for about three months. I knew that living in an intentional community could be a good option. The first person I met at Nashville Greenlands was Carl Meyer, the founder of the community. I found his phone number in an online directory of intentional communities, so I called and left a message. He called back that evening and talked with me for about a half hour. It didn't take me long to realize that he was quite an intriguing character. Well, my name is Carl Meyer, K-A-R-L-M-E-Y-E-R, -E -E and I've been living in some type of uh, com community situation almost my entire life. Carl agreed to let me stay at Greenlands for free because he knew the director of the healthcare campaign where I would be interning. Even though I didn't have to pay rent, I'd still be expected to help out with chores around the house and in the garden. Apparently, the garden encompassed most of the yard. Nashville Greenlands is in the North Nashville neighborhood, the same neighborhood that is home to Fisk University and Tennessee State University. It's an historic place. In the 1960s, Students at Fisk and TSU organized sit-ins at the lunch counters in downtown Nashville, and they also participated in the Freedom Rides to desegregate the interstate bus system. The main street in the neighborhood, Jefferson Street, was the center of a vibrant business district for the black community. Since the 1960s, economic hard times have hit, and many of the businesses have had to close their doors. In the late 60s, several highways were built through the neighborhood, they bypass the business district and divide residential areas. You can hear the rush of the cars from Carl's garden. It's fairly easy to pick out the houses of Nashville Greenlands from the rest of the neighborhood. 
All you have to do is look for extensive and perhaps unruly looking vegetable gardens. Greenlands is made up of four separate houses. There's Carl's house, the house next door to Carl's, and a third house down the street. The fourth house is on a different street, just about a 10 minute walk away. Urban agriculture is a buzzword these days. But when Carl started farming his yard 16 years ago, some people didn't really understand what he was trying to do. His unruly yard attracted his neighbor's attention. If I mention where I live, oh, that, oh I know that because our property is also distinctive because it isn't scalped grass with a scalped, carefully groomed hedge in front of it or something. It's a row of chestnut trees and fruit trees in the front of the property at the north end, and then smaller fruit trees and berry bushes a little further in, and then a garden. And a lot of people think it's too overgrown and too unruly. And so I'm sort of a nonconformist in terms of vegetation here. Carl is quite the nonconformist. He has been involved with the U.S. peace movement since he was a young man. Just like many of his other nonconformist projects, Carl's yard didn't sit too well with the authorities. It actually got him in trouble with some people from the Nashville Public Health Department. The first four years that I was here, the Public Health Department cited me because of the garden and the vegetation and the wildflowers and the ponds and so on for excessive vegetation such as to endanger the health, safety, and welfare of the people of metropolitan Nashville-Davidson County. And for several years I mowed enough to satisfy them. I cried one day as I mowed the meadow and flocks of grasshoppers went up ahead of me and I'm crying because I'm destroying the habitat of these living things in compliance with the damn health department that doesn't understand that vegetation is good for you and that fumes from gasoline mowers give you asthma and so on. Carl was convinced that the health department's policy didn't make sense so he decided to challenge it in court. I prepared a portfolio of the wildflowers and pictures here I got a report on air pollution, and I prepared all this in a folio of pictures and, and went to court. And the health department looked ridiculous. And I got the respect of the health department, but they also learned that it didn't make sense to mess with me. Carl is used to contesting laws he believes to be unjust. He was just 20 years old when he was arrested with peace activists Eamon Hennessy, Dorothy Day, and nine others for refusing to take shelter during a Cold War era air raid drill. Since then, he has been arrested for several other instances of civil disobedience. For about 10 years before he came to Nashville, Carl traveled around in an RV he called the Peace House to give talks about nonviolence. These days the Peace House is parked amidst Carl's garden. So now, instead of attending protests and direct actions, he spends most of his time working around Greenland's houses and gardens. It wasn't difficult, but uh, this way of life is nowhere near as much fun. The peace house I could travel around, uh, meet a lot of people, have a very interesting life, uh, and you don't have to solve any problems because the people who live in a place have to solve the social problems of that place, so I could go 
along and give them advice about how to live, but I didn't have to help them solve any of their social problems themselves. Carl has opted for a constructive program. Unlike direct protests, constructive programs focus on building up what is good rather than tearing down what is bad. Carl often explains this philosophy while giving people tours of his garden. First, the way of life that we ourselves live and the way of life that we model that creates nonviolence. And here we have a three foot by 12 foot bed of uh, asparagus, and this is the mature asparagus plant. Uh, and I Carl believes that he can accomplish more good in the world by leading a simple, sustainable life and modeling that lifestyle for others. I hope that by living with me and doing this, that these ideas and the example of doing them would rub off on the young people and that even if they don't pick up on it now because they're too busy with other things and they got too much else going on and they were taught multitasking and they were conditioned to buy everything in sight by television and so on and so forth, that if they lived and they thought about it, as things maybe get worse on this planet, they're suddenly going to say, ah, now I see what Carl was up to. During my stay at Nashville Greenlands, I worked in the garden with Carl two mornings a week. When I woke up at seven each morning, I couldn't predict whether our conversations in the garden would be about compost or moral philosophy, but I could count on Carl to have some sort of lesson for me. And he was never shy about reminding me they weren't lessons that I would learn in a university pre-professional program. Without Carl's investment of resources, life experience, and vision, Greenlands would not exist. However, the young people who have moved in over the last few years have brought a new dynamic. In the mid-2000s, Carl and a few other community members decided to buy and fix up two new houses. A few university students moved in, they introduced their friends to the community, and one by one, more young people moved into Greenlands. I didn't get to know the young people as much as I would have liked during that spring of 2011. Between my internship at the Health Advocacy Organization and their jobs, classes, and chores, schedules could be hard to coordinate. Luckily, I was able to return the following summer of 2012 to spend more time with the community. Seven of the 15 young people in Greenlands lived in the two-story house next door to Carl's house. I got to know them the best. Here they are. My name is Daria Janae Hudson. Most people know me as DJ. My name is Kate Savage. Um, I'm Matt Christie. I'm Gina Robinson. Is that all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Megan. I am Trevor Bradshaw. My name's Tristan Cull, and I live here. We call this the house of the family of attractive 20-somethings, or the Fats House. In the few years that these seven people have been living together at Greenlands, they have made their house into a hub for activism in Nashville. Simply put, we're badass. <laughs> we're badass and we're everywhere. That's DJ Hudson. She's a 24-year-old student at Vanderbilt Divinity School. She's also an activist for racial and economic justice. I, every time I turn around, you know, um, somebody knows about 
the Greenlands or they know Gina or they know Trevor or they know Tristan or they know Katie. Everybody seems to, to somehow know who we are and what we do. And so because so many of us are involved in a lot of different things, we're a little bit of a hub. All of our different networks are tied together now because of our relationships to each other and because of how often we work together and support each other on different things. Um, we've been around the block a little bit. During the rare times that DJ was around the house, I'd often find her in the kitchen with her housemate, Kate Savage. Kate is a 27-year-old writer and passionate advocate for gender equality and workers' rights. She agrees that Nashville Greenlands is a local activist hub. A lot of schemes get hatched here. This house was really central in a lot of ways to Occupy Nashville when it was first starting up. You know, it's not that we started up Occupy Nashville in any way, but this house is sort of where the facilitation team came around that made Occupy Nashville really focused on careful process. Occupy Nashville started occupying the plaza in front of the state capitol on October 8, 2011. By that time, I had finished my internship and returned to my studies at college. I heard about what the Greenlands community was up to through Facebook updates and the occasional email to the Greenlands listserv. Community members helped Occupy Nashville to focus on consensus decision making, and they were also part of the core group of people who slept out in the plaza each night. Additionally, they made their house available to Occupy activists who needed an indoor space to write press releases, access the internet, or simply to rest with a roof over their heads. It made things around the Fats house a lot more hectic. DJ explained how Greenland's members came together to make sure things around the house continued to run smoothly. Occupies took up so much time and energy, especially the, gen the earlier general assemblies and the nights when we'd be out on the plaza until 10, 11 o'clock at night, easy. We, of course, would rotate taking care of duties around the house, making sure that things weren't falling apart, cooking for each other, having hot chocolate ready when people came home if it was really, really cold, being willing to talk to one another about whatever we were feeling because things easily got really stressful and intense with Occupy. The young people at Nashville Greenlands really did need each other for support during their involvement in Occupy Nashville. There's a good reason DJ described Occupy as stressful and intense. In late October 2011, the Tennessee state government instituted an 8 p.m. curfew for citizens in Legislative Plaza and required that all citizens have daily permits to be in the area. Occupiers considered this an infringement on their right to assemble, so they refused to leave. DJ, Kate, and another House member we'll soon meet, Tristan, were among those who stayed in the plaza past curfew. I'll also never forget like the flashbulb moment. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning and me, Tristan, and Katie were um, in a tent sleeping. And um, I hear Michael Custer, he's saying, they're here, they're here. And we just went to sleep, so I was still kind of groggy. I'm like pulling my boots on. It was like rainy and slick out. And I step out of the tent and... Um, looking around the plaza, our tent was kind of towards the center of the plaza, and everywhere as you could see, it was like almost like panning a video camera around. Everywhere you could see were just lines of state troopers coming from all directions, and so you could tell that we were definitely about to get um, hemmed in. It's so, like the plan was uh, already ahead of time that people who weren't going to get arrested would hurry up and like pack up everybody's stuff, um, and then the rest of us would go to the middle, and so like we moved to the middle, um, and they came and. 
uh, surrounded us and they're just more and more people and we like linked arms in the middle and it was just tiny knot of about what was it 29 of us I think it was uh, and our the closer we came together the smaller our group seemed and then the more we looked around there were more and more troopers and finally like the whole all told count was of over a hundred state troopers have been sent to get us yeah we went out there we saying we shall overcome um somebody read from the constitution of tennessee and of the declaration of independence and there was this one really cool moment where so the, the troopers had a bullhorn of course where they were informing us how much time we had to disperse and at one point um when one of our friends bill was reading uh, the declaration of independence the time like five minute time limit went up and so one of the troopers raised the bullhorn to tell us and another trooper actually reached and pushed the bullhorn down and let him finish reading we shall overcome we shall overcome someday Um, and then they told us that we were going to get arrested and they picked us up and dragged us across the, the plaza because most of us decided not to walk. And so, yeah, it was a very, very, very tired and wearying moment, but it wasn't scary because, you know, we knew that we had a right to be there and we knew that why we were getting arrested. The night judge on duty threw out the case against the protesters. He said that the state didn't have the authority to set a curfew on the plaza. After spending the night waiting in buses and in the garage of the Metro City Jail, they were free to go. And then we get out and it's like this triumphant moment. It's like the whole Rocky movie moment where like reporters and all our friends out there cheering and it was pouring raining and cold and like they had donuts and coffee and stuff waiting for us. And we marched back to the plaza for the second and to wait for the second night of arrest, so. Kate wasn't arrested with DJ and Tristan. She was one of the people waiting for them in the morning. Greenlands was the home base for everyone to meet up after the protesters were free. It was just such a, a buzz of energy in the place where I live and I love that. When your housemates and friends are organizing protests and converting your living room into a media response headquarters, it's hard not to get swept up in the excitement. Matt is a 28-year-old artist originally from Nashville. He first came to Greenlands because Carl had visited one of his art classes, and he liked the idea of environmentally sustainable living. He definitely would not have been as involved with Occupy without the influence of his housemates. I was doing stuff that I wouldn't have done like a month ago. It was like the first day of state legislation. Um, we all went in there in the balconies in the in the Senate in the House. And then like we each had two stacks of checks, what did it say? It said the people's bribe on it. It was ninety-nine dollars or whatever it was. Whatever it was, it was like the ninety-nine percent bribing the the one percent. I was sitting across from Hugo and DJ and uh, we were supposed to get this text message saying go. And so I had my phone out next to me. Uh, so I'm waiting, like, anticipating. We sat there for 40 minutes on my balcony, and I'm anticipating this text message, you know? And I, like, got it on my knee, and text message comes, and I'm like, <laughs> and I, like, you know, lightning quick grab it and, like, check it.
and it's from Hugo, and it's like two minutes from when we're supposed to do this. So I'm like, we're going early, you know, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm just antsy. And it says, there's a representative here with a last name, Butts. <laughs> and I was like, God, you're an idiot. <laughs> Put my phone back down. So we threw all the stuff, at, like right in sync, like suddenly all these little checks cascading and twirling in the light down to the, uh, the representatives below. And then we turned and walked out. It was super easy, no one said a thing. It felt really daring at the time. I was really nervous about it actually. It seems kind of silly. I mean, they, they, they could have done something, but they decided not to. Uh, they totally ignored it, actually. I had assumed that everyone in the house would consider themselves to be activists. After all, my first interactions with the community were conversations with Carl and a nuclear protest potluck. But as I got to know the rest of the community better, I realized that many people wouldn't label themselves as an activist per se. Gina Robinson works for a community farm, salvages unused food, and spends her free time reading about the Black Power Movement. We were sitting in the kitchen one day, finishing up lunch. When I asked her what she thought about activism, she explained that sometimes she hesitates to take a public stand. I'm kind of burnt out from the whole evangelical movement, that's how I grew up, and so this whole like proselytizing, like, go out and tell people what they should be doing and how they should be doing it, like, it just never worked. I'm not gonna convince anyone that I don't know to do something or to do something right or not but like if I have a personal relationship with those people and we can have a real conversation and listen to each other and know each other and care about each other maybe then we can actually hear each other maybe then we can actually change something. Gina's hesitation to take a public stand has caused tension with some of the more vocal activists in the house. I first like really started talking to Katie and Tristan first but they were so like into activism stuff that like I just didn't feel like we could actually be friends because <laughs> I was like I would let them borrow my car and like, go on like social justice trips with them, but I didn't really feel like we connected on like a friendship level until like a, a year later. It's true that expectations can be high in a community of idealistic activists. Tristan Call, who is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Vanderbilt, has realized that he needs to let go of certain ideals in the name of community living. We talked about it in the living room of the Fats House, where we were surrounded by piles of books about labor theory, indigenous land rights, and political philosophy. If you do build expectations of everybody having a common vision, then you encounter inevitable disappointments when people have different approaches. One that comes up with me is I'd rather not have air conditioning. Other people would rather have air conditioning. And I try to bite my tongue and not talk about mountaintop removal at least not frequently. Unlike Tristan, DJ prefers to have air conditioning sometimes. I could empathize. Carl didn't use air conditioning in the house where I was staying either, and it could get uncomfortable in there, especially on summer days when he decided to can apples in the small kitchen. For DJ and others in the community, it has been important to have honest and sometimes uncomfortable conversations about their different expectations and personal backgrounds. When DJ first moved to Greenlands in 2010, she was the only person of color living in the Fats House. DJ grew up in an African-American community in a small town in Georgia, and then attended Fisk University, a historic black college. 
Even though the Greenland's houses are a short 10 minute walk away from Fisk, it wasn't necessarily simple for DJ to settle into her little room at Greenland's. Probably the biggest adjustment for me was cultural and racial, of course, because this is the first time, one, being at the Divinity School and two, living at the Greenlands, where I've been around predominantly white people almost all of my life. Whether I was an undergrad, when I was growing up back in Georgia, I was around almost all people of color. It definitely took a lot of adjustment and still does from time to time. And so that was a process. It wasn't a hard process. It was very much a learning process and there was a lot of curiosity about me. The curiosity was mutual, though. I joke with Tristan and Katie all the time that I've been doing this running anthropological study of white people (laughs) Um, without their knowledge. Um, But everybody so far has been really open to talking about it. And we've definitely developed um, a relationship where people are willing and committed to like wading into the tension and talking it through. As the weeks went by, I noticed that these challenging, deeply honest conversations happened rather frequently. Conversation could easily turn from considering what plants to put in the garden to an analysis of gender dynamics at the last activist event. I came to realize that this willingness to wrestle with issues is what ultimately transforms people. Gina, for example, is a different person than she was just a few years ago. I mean, my religious views have changed, my environmental views have changed, my views on racism and sexism and classism have changed. I mean, lots of, lots of things have have changed. Greenland's community members have many interactions and meaningful conversations within their house, but I didn't see them interacting very much with people in the neighborhood. That really puzzled me, especially given everyone's commitment to the idea of community and to economic and racial justice. I decided to ask community members what they thought of the interaction between Greenlands and the community of North Nashville. Megan Gilbreth was the newest member of Greenlands when I was staying there. She is a recent college graduate and she works for an organization that serves the Nashville homeless community. She thinks that Greenlands doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the North Nashville neighborhood. I think Greenlands, see I kind of struggle with that one personally because like uh, the idea, the whole sense of, like, the, the white flight and gentrification, I think, is, like, what first pops into my mind. Because, like, having a whole bunch of idealistic radicals running around doesn't really fit into, you know, like, the hood. <laughs> you know what I mean? I began to realize that building meaningful connections between Greenlands and the rest of the neighborhood was more complicated than I originally thought. Most Greenlands community members have graduated from college that already sets them apart from many of their neighbors. But there is often another big distinction, race. Keith Caldwell is a community organizer who grew up in North Nashville. He is a mentor to DJ, a friend of Carl, and currently helps direct a community organizing and advocacy organization called Urban Epicenter. Keith was able to speak very candidly about the role of Greenlands in the broader North Nashville community. I see Greenlands as a benefit to this community in some ways and also I won't I won't stretch to make it as though the Greenlands are gentrifying because usually with gentrification I, th- I think more of people putting McMansions on a lot or something where with Carl what they've done they've taken houses that were pretty much dilapidated and brought them up to living standards and then provide affordable housing for a lot of students but then you notice that even with students that still 
a privileged class, you know, and so it's not going to necessarily be the same as the general community because of, you know, access to resources. Gentrification is a real concern in Nashville. In recent years, property values have been rising in several predominantly African-American working-class neighborhoods. Sometimes people who have lived in these neighborhoods for decades find that they can no longer afford the property taxes on their houses, and they have to move away. It's a complicated issue because many of these neighborhoods really do need new investment. It's troubling, though, that most of the people moving in are white, while most of the people forced to move out are black. Due to the worry over gentrification, Carl's neighbors were a little suspicious of him when he first moved to the neighborhood. When he got involved with the Neighborhood Block Association, the association president was curious to know why he had chosen to move to the neighborhood. She said, we wondered at first when he came here, what, what was he up to or did he know something about this neighborhood that we didn't know? Uh, no. They found out that I came here to live here as a middle uh, old man getting older and to participate actively in the community. So I believe that Nashville Greenlands is also a powerful statement against racism. Now Carl is a pretty established member of the community, at least as he sees it. Everybody walking by, well, I'm not terribly friendly, but people say hello to me and they wave to me. And uh, I stand out some and, you know, uh, I have a gray beard and long hair. And anybody that participates in the politics and social action of the neighborhood, they know that I'm involved in neighborhood and community issues. Carl is certainly a familiar face to the older generation in the neighborhood. When I would go to the laundromat down the street, people would often ask me if he was my grandfather. But Keith let me know that seeing young white people around the neighborhood still sparks people's curiosity. People were asking me, what, what were you doing over there? What are, I see that white guy, what, are, what do they do over there? You know, and then, what, what is it? <laughs> it's funny. Keith's description made sense, but I knew there was a disconnect deeper than mere curiosity about physical appearances. Carl seemed pretty comfortable with his role in the neighborhood, but some of the younger community members were not so assured. Kate was especially concerned with the question of building stronger relationships with her neighbors. At the end of the day, sometimes I just think, I guess I'm a gentrifier. Like, I guess this is what it feels like to be a gentrifier. And I'm, maybe I'm like the first wave of forging a hipster bourgeois class here in North Nashville that will then like displace people who have lived here for generations. Keith explained that longtime residents of the neighborhood question these socioeconomic disparities too. Then there's this thing, well, okay, these are privileged whites and they're hippies and they're choosing to live like this and they can go back to their trust funds if they wanted to. And that could be making assumptions, but it does come off like that, right? And they're over at Vanderbilt or they'll write about North Nashville one day and be on the Today Show and make a million dollars and I live this, right? Right. What, what I'm saying is, people know that this isn't like, if you pardon the expression, poor white trash, and people aren't languishing and smoking cigarettes out of the front and cussing each other, you know. So it's very different. 
These tensions are usually pretty subtle. For the most part, the interactions between the Greenland's houses and their neighbors look like most other neighbor-to-neighbor relationships. I'll talk with our neighbors, and they're so supportive of what we're doing here, and they'll talk with us about how, um, you know, what they're planting, or how they grew up with a garden, and and so sometimes I, I feel really good about it, but there's always this sort of underground uncertainty that just like sits in your stomach of, you know, maybe I don't belong here. Other community members feel the uncertainty of being outsiders in the neighborhood too. Another one of Kate's 20-something-year-old housemates, Trevor, identifies more as an artist than an activist. He thinks that the location of Greenlands in North Nashville ties it more strongly to the social movements that it supports. I think being surrounded by such historical universities with the civil rights movement and everything, I think is probably why we landed here. Greenlands is a small community, but its presence can be felt throughout Nashville's progressive social movements. It isn't without its shortcomings, both inside and outside the walls of its four houses. Yet Greenlands will continue to grow as the young people shape Carl's vision into their own. When we got here, Nashville Greenlands was Carl's project, and now it is a community. Carl has seen that there's a beginning to be a situation where he can begin to let go a little bit. Katie and I are buying this house. We'll own it in 13 years or something like that. 13 years is quite a while, but there is plenty to look forward to. This process of growing the Greenlands community will take time, effort, and as Trevor explained to me one day, creativity. Everyone that is here has to have some sort of creativity to make something like this happen. It doesn't have to be some sort of physical creativity. It's more of a, uh, a spirit that like, let's, let's build this, let's make this, let's, let's do something, let's change something. For me, Nashville Greenlands represents a spirit of growth. It encouraged me to hold on to my idealism and to take a stand for my beliefs. My friends at Greenland strive to live in accordance with their vision for a better world. And they don't do it alone. And that is a practice worth preaching about.